This message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. We talked about the boundary stones being, um, being shifting and, and mentioned some verses there, Psalm 74, verse 16, the day is yours, yours also the night. You established the sun and the moon, and it was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. And Proverbs 22, verse 28, which says, Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. We talked about God creating boundaries in creation itself. The tides, the sun, the moon, the stars, the the principles that order creation, and and I said how vital it was that we, don't, um, that we don't usurp created orders. That Lucifer's sin and Adam's sins, those original sins, were both a usurping of a created order. We talked about the boundary of our freedom, how, how God says you can go this far but no further. You can eat from anything except from that tree. God God gives us freedom, but he puts boundaries and limits on it. We talked about the boundaries of revelation. That God says, um, uh, secret things belong to me. Revealed things belong to you. But you know what? There are some secrets that belong to me, says God. And I said last week, we don't have to um, understand everything to obey it. There are mysteries. There are things in here you and I may not understand. It does not for one minute make them untrue. We talked about the moving of those boundary stones, and I gave you a couple of verses, um, three verses. First of all, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow uh, deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And then in Jude 1, verses 3 and 4, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people, for ungodly people pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. The real issue at stake, as as came through very clearly in the clips there, is, is this the word of the Lord? We'll come back to that again. We set out five underlying beliefs, and it's important to restate those this morning because we will certainly want you to hear everything today in the context of these five things. Firstly, that God is good He's loving. He only has good plans for our lives. And he alone is the source of true love and true liberty, freedom. Secondly, that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and eternal word of God. Thirdly, that Satan is a liar and a thief. That's really important for you to hear this morning. He always seeks to distort the word of God. Scripture in 1 Timothy talked about things taught by demons. Don't be under illusions about the source of these things. Satan is a liar and a thief. Jesus said he's the father of lies. He seeks to distort the word of God. Did God really say his first words? To lead men into rebellion against God. And also, because of the fall, and this also is vitally important for us, because of the fall, sin has corrupted every aspect of our humanity, including our sexuality. Number four, the gospel of the kingdom is God's total answer to man's total need. And we believe the gospel is good news and has something positive, life-giving, and liberating to say into every situation we face, including these complex ones. And fifthly, that when somebody is born again, they become a new creation. God gives us a fresh start, a brand new start, 
and our whole environment changes as we're transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his son. We experience a renewing of the mind and everything begins to change. Uh, we began in Genesis 2.24, which I said was the, is the first mention of marriage. Here also in the garden, in chapter 2 and verse 10, you'll find a river. And the river also has its source in the garden. And the river flows from the garden, it tells us, and it, it separates into four head, head streams or four other rivers or four streams, four headwaters that then water the earth. And I love that picture. It's a picture of something very natural and physical, that, that there was a spring of life in the garden that first watered the garden and then, and then flowed out to, to water the earth. And you know, in the same way, these truths in Genesis start here in the garden, but, but you'll find they flow into the rest of Scripture. And especially, if you could just put the, the previous one up, guys, the, um, that one, there we go. Concerning marriage, the source is here. But there are some streams that flow from that source into some other places, and this is what we'll look at this morning. So let me read a few, uh, let me just, first of all, to say, Genesis 2.24, that's our source text. In that verse, and in the verses surrounding it, marriage is created and defined. That's the starting point. We can't reach any conclusion that contradicts the starting point. That's where it starts. Then you'll find um, there are four subsidiaries, four streams, four places that that verse is quoted in the New Testament. The principles are everywhere, but that, that verse is quoted four times in the New Testament, twice by Jesus, uh, that's the same occasion there, but Matthew and Mark both record that, and on those occasions, D Jesus is dealing with some issues to do with divorce, so we'll come on to them. And then over on this side, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul quotes the same verses, or aspects of them, when he's talking about sexual immorality. So we'll look at those. And then in Ephesians 5, Paul again quotes from Genesis 2.24, and this time he's talking about the cosmic plan. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. This topic's much bigger than, we, than you might think. Yeah. You may not understand it. It may be a mystery. Doesn't make it any less true. So, first of all, let's look at the source. And uh, I'm going to read, read a few little verses, uh, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, Genesis 26, 27, 28, and then chapter 2, 18 to 25. So Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1 is, is, a, is a summary of how God created. Genesis 2 um, goes back into that sixth day and gives us some detail of how it happened. So we're going to go into Genesis 2 now, which sort of goes behind the scenes of, of that summary that God created man in his own image and commanded them to be fruitful. Let's look at the detail of how that happened. Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals, but for Adam, 
No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's look at seven truths in those verses. The first is that God created mankind. Um, This is great news because it means there's a creator, there's a maker who created life, who knows how it is best lived, and this should liberate us greatly because for best results, we should follow the maker's instructions. In the beginning, God made, created But then secondly, it tells us specifically in chapter 1, verses 26, 27, God created mankind in his image. That word means in in the form or the likeness or the resemblance or to represent. What we find in mankind reflects and represents God himself. The way mankind has been made tells us something about God. God said, let us make mankind in our image. Father, Son, and Spirit, the the Trinity, God, the Godhead, the triune God, saying, let us make mankind in our image, in a way that represents us. And then the next verse, 27, says, God created male and female. He created two distinct genders. There's a distinction, there's a complementarity in mankind that reflects the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. God has created men and women as distinct, complementary expressions of his image. Not because he's man and woman, but because there, are, there is one essence in God with different expressions of one essence. There is Father, there is Son, there is Spirit. And in mankind, there is one essence, but different expressions. There is male and there is female. You with me so far? God exists as three distinct persons, the same in essence, different in expression, and completely united in oneness. Man and woman are made in this image. Two distinct persons. The same but different. To be united in a way that reflects the union within the Godhead. The creator intends a clear and dis- a clear distinction between the sexes. Satan often tries to blur that. That's really important. When we come on to issues of head coverings, these issues are at stake. We're not teaching on that today. So God created mankind. God created mankind in his image, and God created male and female. And then we find God created marriage. And he created the marriage. He says, for this reason, the man will leave his father and be united to his wife. There's a marriage there. And he created marriage to unite the man and woman precisely because of their distinction. Have a look at verse chapter 2, verse 24. Or rather, yeah, verse 24. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. There's a reason for it. 
for this reason. Well, well, what is this reason? Well, have a look at the verses above it. Chapter, uh, verse 20 says, um, the second half says, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she's taken out of man. For this reason... What's the reason? The reason is because she came from him. She's of the same kind as him, but they're different. They're distinct. They're complementary. The reason is because she's suitable for him. The reason is because she's a woman and he's a man. When... We're going to have to get ahead of ourselves here. But when Jesus quotes this in Matthew 19, so if you just turn to Matthew 19, Jesus is quoting from Genesis, and we'll come onto this in a moment because, because what he says about this is really significant. But, it, but he shortens, he truncates the quote, but in doing so, he makes the reason for marriage crystal clear. Have a look at verse 4, Genesis, uh, Matthew 19, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? He's quoting there from Genesis 1. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. We'll come on to the rest of that in just a moment. Haven't you read, at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife? What's the reason for the marriage? The reason is, he's a male, she's a female. Are you with me? God not only created the marriage, he then defined the marriage. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 24, and in defining the marriage, the Lord gives us three essential elements to the marriage. For this reason, the one we've just been talking about, the fact that she's of the same kind but a different expression, the fact that she's a suitable helper like none of the other animals, praise God, the fact that she's bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, the fact that she's called woman, he's called man, for those reasons, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. So there are three elements to the marriage. There is the leaving. The man leaves his father and mother in order to form a new union now with his wife. And then there, he is united with her. And that's a great word. The old, the old versions, the King James and the, the authorized version, used to call that uh, cleaving, which is great because it rhymes with leaving. Um, and we used to talk about leaving and cleaving. But this word cleaving, it, it literally means to be glued together, to adhere, to be bonded with, to cling to. For this reason... I need a suitable helper. None of the animals will do. She's now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's the same essence, but she's a different expression. For this reason, I will be glued together with her, bonded to her. So the man leaves his father and mother. The woman leaves her father and mother, and they're united together, bonded together. They cleave together. They are glued together. And something exclusive and permanent is established between the man and the woman. And thus God um, establishes another building block in society, if I can put it that way. And then the third element is he leaves, he cleaves, he becomes one flesh. The third uh, essential element of marriage is the consummation of a marriage 
through sexual intercourse, which is the closest and most intimate two human beings can be, physically. Interestingly, the consummation of marriage has for centuries and centuries been part of the legal definition of marriage in this country until the law was changed. Because two people of the same sex cannot consummate the marriage. So, marriage is defined by God in creation as the union between one man and one woman who become one flesh. Marriage can't be redefined by the state, can't be redefined by Richard Jones or myself or Kerry Jones or, or, or any parts of the church. Marriage cannot be redefined because God defined it in creation. And you know what? Since marriage is... Um, in the way I've described, marriage is an expression of the nature of God. A man and a woman made in his image, made in his nature to express something of him. Any attempt to redefine marriage is ultimately an attempt to redefine God himself. To use marriage to describe the union between two people of the same sex or perhaps between three people or however else People might try and change the law to describe marriage. Or people who have no sex on their birth certificate. To use that word to describe anything other than what I've described here is to use it to describe, to mean something that biblically it does not mean. I'm not denying that the law is being changed. I'm just saying biblically, that's what marriage is. Do I hear an amen? Amen. The Evangelical Alliance, um, in the last couple of years, put out some, some notes, and um, they made this statement, and, and it, this is an important one, and we would say this would be our position as well. We, we don't accept that holding, um, holding views on theological grounds, on ethical grounds, is homophobic. We don't hate anybody. We're simply saying, what does the Bible say? So number one, God created marriage, uh, mankind. Number two, God created mankind in his image. Number three, God created male and female. God created marriage. God then defined marriage. And, and sixthly, just to go back to that last point, in marriage, husband and wife become one. There is an intimate physical union that takes place, but you know, there's a joining that's deeper still. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, marriage is described as a covenant in which God joins two people. When Jesus is quoting from this, back into Matthew 19 now, when Jesus is quoting in Matthew 19, he says, um, for this, they're no, uh, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now check this out. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Wow. God has joined together. It was great yesterday to be the witnesses of God joining together Mark and Leone. And God joins a man and a a wife together in a way that is um, deeper than simply physical. That's deep. But they become one. Marriage is a marriage covenant. And then the last point I'm going to make, then we're going to have a two-minute leg stretch, is this. God blessed the marriage union and commissioned their fruitfulness. Aren't you glad about that? All you married couples, the man and the woman were to be fruitful and increase in number. God blessed them with sexual intimacy for their pleasure, for their fulfillment, but also to reproduce, to reproduce after their own kind, 
so that the earth would be filled with others made in his image. God wants the whole earth filled with men and women in his image. So, these creation truths must form the foundation and the the basis and the starting point for all our theology and doctrines concerning marriage. Every other statement must flow from those and be entirely consistent with those things. You know, God created marriage, defined marriage as the basic normal relationship between a man and a woman and as an expression of his own nature. And from the garden onwards, it has been the foundation of the biblical family and society. God loves covenant. He loves marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says marriage should be honored by all. The thief and the liar hates marriage and will try and destroy marriage. But God acts to preserve, to protect, to promote marriage and, and this is very important for us practically, to empower us to overcome all the forces that would work against marriage. God wants to empower that amongst us this morning. Amen. We're going to take a little pause there. Feel free to stand up, stretch your legs, tickle the angels. We're going to come back to the three streams. We need a little bit more time. The purpose of today's teaching. It's important we give time to it. Okay, so what we tried to do in that first, just over a half, was to look at um, what does it it say in Genesis? What does it say in the garden? What's the first source we have to tell us something about marriage? And it's there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And uh, when you get into the detail, there's lots said, isn't there, that those seven things we said, God has created mankind, created man in his image, created male and female, created marriage, to join together those two distinct types, uh, those, essence, those uh, expressions of that essence. God has created marriage and defined it with those three elements. God has um, joined the man and woman in a way which is a profound mystery, and um, he has commissioned them to be fruitful and to multiply. Let's now look, if you could just go back to the little, the little um, source and streams chart, guys, that one. Let's just have a look now at these, these three subsidiary, um, tribu- subsidiary streams, rivers that have flowed out of that main truth. And the first concerns divorce. And um, we'll just read Matthew's gospel. They're slightly different how they express it, but um, for the sake of time and clarity, we'll just, we'll just read in Matthew. Um, it shouldn't surprise us that this is where the river flows. Because divorce, and especially uh, quick and easy divorce as a means of, of um, ending a marriage, obviously works against the marriage covenant. So in Matthew 19, Jesus is asked about divorce. We've looked at this in, sort of in passing. Now we're going to just read the whole passage. He's asked about divorce, and this is what he said, says. Verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, or yours might say marital unfaithfulness, 
and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus is asked whether divorce is permissible, and, um, and it's interesting the phrase used. The, the question in verse 3 there is, is divorce permissible for any and every reason? That had become the way of things. For any and every reason, a man was issuing his wife with a, a certificate of divorce and sending her away. Um, but to answer the question, look what Jesus does. He goes back to the source. He says, um, it, what, he says, at the beginning. Then he says, it wasn't that way from the beginning. Jesus goes back to the beginning, and that's, that's an important principle. You know, I was saying we derive our theology from above. If, we are, if we're restorationists, if we believe in the restoration of all things, we'll always go back to the beginning. We'll always go back to the original intention. We'll always say, God, what was your intention in this? Help us go back to the original intention. And so that's exactly what Jesus does. Malachi 2.16 says, uh, God says, he hates divorce. He doesn't say he hates divorcees, but he hates divorce because it breaks marriage. And because he loves marriage, because he loves the marriage covenant, because he's established marriage as the, as the, as the basic um, means of family and society, in a sense, he has to hate divorce. God loves marriage, therefore he hates divorce because it breaks the marriage covenant. However, God permits divorce because he loves people and he doesn't want people to be violated or abandoned and therefore although divorce is not permissible for any and every reason the the New Testament does give us two clear biblical grounds on which divorce is permitted the first is right here in Matthew 19 he says um I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, that word is porneia. We'll come on to it in a moment. Sexual immorality. Uh, your, your Bible might say adultery or, or um, marital unfaithfulness. But the word literally means to sell off. Porneia is a, is a selling off of morality, of faithfulness. In other words, it's a giving over to, a surrendering of purity and a, and a giving over to promiscuity. And Jesus permits a divorce where unfaithfulness has occurred because then the foundational principle of the husband and the wife being one flesh has been broken. Paul then in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 Uh, verse 15, in a a whole chapter where he talks about marriage in different ways, um, different different circumstances people might be in. He also says, if if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves, um, then the the believer is is not bound in that marriage anymore. And the word there for for leaves is a word, um, corizo, I think it's up there, isn't it? Yeah, Corizo, which means to separate or create a space. And the abandonment that Paul is talking about clearly, um, clearly includes a physical leaving. One partner leaves, abandons the marriage. Um, but, and we'll maybe talk more about this next week, there, are, there may also be cases where... Um, the abandonment is, is of basic marital responsibilities. Maybe two people live under the same roof, but to all intents and purposes, the marriage has been abandoned by one of them. What you'll find with these two things, we have to be very careful how widely or narrowly we define these words. How widely would we define poneia? How widely would we define Corizo? And um, there are no easy answers, but I thank God we have, we have the Spirit. 
to help us uh, apply the word. Um, interestingly, when Paul talks about this, he, he addresses certain situations. He says, now, now on this instance, um, I tell you this, but it's not really me, it's the Lord. Then on other instances, he says, now on this, I tell you that, I, I say this, this isn't the Lord, this is me now. He's saying, you're apostle, I'm speaking to you. And on some other instances, he says, now on this, he says, I haven't really got a, I haven't really got a, a word for you. But, um, but I speak as one with good judgment, and this is my advice to you. Yeah. And what we find as elders is people's lives and situations throw up circumstances that we have to apply the word. We have to go back to the beginning. Say, what was God's original intention? How do we apply the heart, the intent of God into these circumstances. But, but there are two things there. Jesus talks about um, porneia, adultery. Paul talks about chorizo, abandonment. And in each case, we believe the marriage covenant is broken by the guilty party, leaving the innocent party free to remarry. In that circumstance, as Paul would say, you're not bound, you're free. It's vital we take great care how we define these things. The biblical grounds for divorce, interestingly, also serve to underline the fact that marriage is to be publicly recognized. Two people who, who think they're married but are not legally married are not married. If, if the state, if the nation, if the, if the legal system we're under um, gives us the means to have a legally recognized marriage, we should do that. Interestingly, yesterday, there was no registrar present. I thought, I hope they remembered to get this legally, um, <laughs> legally signed here. Then I was thinking, what if they've forgotten? Well, I'd, I still think, you know, they've made their covenant before God, and they can go on their honeymoon and celebrate. But, uh, but legally, we, need, we, we should be legally married. Unless... Hmm? I know they are. Yeah. By the way, just, sorry, just to finish the story, they are. They are. Everything's fine. I was going to go somewhere that I wasn't sure where I'd end up, and I'm going to just, I'm just, I'm going to just going to stop. Couples in the church never threaten separation or divorce. Your marriage is not disposable. God is with us to preserve, protect, and empower us to overcome all the forces that would work against marriage. And it's also really important to say on this point that new birth and regeneration makes somebody a new creation. And when we come to Christ, whatever our past, God turns the page over and gives us a brand new start. Amen. The slate is wiped clean. The past is forgiven. The page is turned. All things are new. And we find ourselves now living in the kingdom of God instead of the domain of darkness. The second place that those streams come, and it's the one on the right-hand side, is concerning sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 12 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6. Here um, we find a tremendously powerful assault on marriage. Shouldn't surprise us that the river flows here. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. The word here is porneia throughout. But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's said, the two will become one flesh. There he is quoting from Genesis 2.24. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There are God-imposed boundaries. Uh, it may be, it may be um, uh, you, I have the right to do anything, but not everything's beneficial. I can do this, but, it, but I won't be mastered by anything. It starts off talking about boundaries. And in these areas, folks, men and women, young and old, we will have to learn how to exercise self-control and restraint. We're made for the Lord not to indulge our sexual desires in unpermitted ways. This word poneia is translated as sexual immorality, adultery, marital unfaithfulness, things that are illegitimate, immoral, sexually sin. And, and, and as I said to you, the root word means to have abandoned, to sold off purity. But we belong to Christ. This is a mystery. We've been, we're part of Christ's body if we unite ourselves with someone sexually, be it a prostitute or anybody else, then we become one flesh with them. And if that person is not our marriage partner, we've broken the marriage covenant. Therefore, that third point there, the only biblically permitted, divinely blessed sexual acts are those between a husband and a wife expressed within their marriage covenant. In fact, marriage is God's provision for us against immorality. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Marriage is given as a provision, as a protection to help us. But the Bible consistently commands purity before marriage, faithfulness within marriage. And every other type of porneia, every, every type of porneia, including all forms of pornography, the name should give you the clue, are forbidden for believers. Marriage should be honored by all, Hebrews 13.4, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. It's the teaching of this church that there should be no sexual activity of any kind, no petting, no fondling, no nakedness between two people who are not married to each other. Pornography may be freely available, but it will rapidly destroy you. Avoid all compromising situations, all triggers of temptation. Paul writes to the Ephesians, he said, amongst you there should be no hint of sexual immorality. And it's not... It's not the standard isn't high enough to say, well, there isn't actually anything going on. There shouldn't even be a hint of it. Sexual immorality will destroy marriage, either the one you're in or the one you'd like to be in when you get married. And therefore, purity before marriage and faithfulness within marriage is God's blessing and best for us. We also counsel all believers in our care not to begin or to continue dating unbelievers. That all dating should be with a view to a potential marriage. And therefore, since a believer and an unbeliever cannot share at the most deepest levels, 2 Corinthians talks about being unequally yoked or mismatched. Since uh, that is the case between a believer and an unbeliever, since therefore it shouldn't be leading to a marriage, it shouldn't start with dating. That's our position. Yeah. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are, you're to flee from sexual immorality. And I think the verb is interesting there, isn't it? Flee from it. It means take safety by flight. There's a story in Genesis of, 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 of Joseph, this handsome, strapping... Can you picture him? Good-looking guy. And, um, and Potiphar's wife makes a play for him. And he literally flees. He literally runs away from her. And, and, you know, I just feel to say this to us all. Don't hesitate to do the same. Flee sexual immorality. Flee any hint of it. Flee any situation that might lead to it. Let's flee it because nothing will destroy you, destroy the church, destroy your marriage like porneia, sexual immorality. I thought I'd end on a high. <laughs> Praise God. Lead us up to the baptism this morning. Um, and the third place this river finds itself flowing is into Ephesians 5. And this is just simply marvelous. Ephesians 5, verse 21, if you turn there. Ephesians 5, 21. Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." Elsewhere, you know, Paul, Paul writes to the Corinthians, says, I've promised you in marriage to Christ. In this way, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who hates his wife, who he loves his wife, loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for the body just as Christ does for the church. 30, for we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking to you about Christ and the church. Throughout the word, God speaks of Israel as his bride. He describes their rebellion as unfaithfulness, adultery. Sometimes even prostitution. Jesus talks about himself being a bridegroom. John the Baptist sees himself as the best man at the wedding. Paul speaks of having promised the Corinthians to, to, to Christ in marriage. And Revelation ends with the church beautifully dressed as a bride prepared for her husband. God's whole plan and purpose is described as a marriage covenant. Marriage is not just the proper context for sexual intimacy. Marriage is not just the proper means of multiplication. Marriage is not just the provision for us to provide us with companionship. It is all these things, but it's far more than that. It's far bigger. It's far more mysterious, far more magnificent. It is a picture of God and his people. It's a picture of Christ and his church. It's a description of the very plan and purpose of God. Marriage is created and defined by God as one man and one woman becoming one flesh in an exclusive, permanent, fruitful relationship because that alone represents the plan of God. Marriage can never be between two people of the same sex because the union of man and man or woman and woman can never reflect the purpose of God to unite his son with his bride. Now you may think that's a subsidiary point. Friends, that is the main point. 
My marriage is not just about Deborah and I. It's not just about our intimacy. It's not just about our companionship. It's not just about creating the proper context for our children to have been born and raised. It is those things, but it's far more than those things. It is about Christ and his church. And God wants to empower us, all of us, to live these things out in a way that honors him. I want us to be known for what we are for, not what people might think we are against. We are for biblical marriage. We are for all people, whatever they believe. We are for those who've been cheated, let down, or walked out on. We are for those who've never seen how a good marriage can work. We are for everyone who's messed up, made mistakes, and got it wrong. We're for everyone who wants to get it right. We're for everyone battling temptation. We're for everyone who needs a fresh start. We're for everyone seeking Christ. And above all, we are for God and his word. And we will never compromise on it because we believe God is good. We believe his word is eternal. We believe Satan is a liar and a thief. We believe the gospel of the kingdom is God's total answer to man's total need. And we believe that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen. Hallelujah. Now next week, we will try and address some of the practical issues that arise from these things. If you have a question arising out of today that you'd like us to uh, answer, if you would email that to um, Kim at the office or Sharon at the office, um, then they can get that to us and we'll try and do that. If not next week, then sometime after that. But we certainly want to look next week at um, the church as a family for unmarrieds, fatherless, motherless, widows, divorcees, the church's family. We want to look at um, the challenges for those facing same-sex attraction. And um, if there's time, we might do some other things as well. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. I know I've been uh, lengthy in time. Yeah. Thanks for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk.